Welcome back to another impactful night An impact to education leadership This is episode 191 I'm your host, Daddy 3503 Tonight's panelists are Dr. Isaac Carrier Brother, I said brother, that's right Brother, Buddy Thorpe Patricia Seller, Larry Davis Randy Boom Boom Blake Randy Boom Boom Blake, please say hello again to the people, sir Hello everyone, good to be back all right, and Buddy Thornton, Postal Changes Pro, please hello to the people again, sir. I don't know about this lineup tonight. I'm feeling like I'm like in the second tier, but uh, I love being here with them. I, I love Dr. Larry and I love uh, Randy Boom Boom and Dr. Isaac. I've been on them with them many times before, and I just really appreciate their wisdom. So thank you for letting me be back. Absolutely. And with that being said, Dr. Larry Davis, please hello again to the people, sir. Hello, I'm happy to be here. I just want to give give some advice for people when they listen to Buddy Thornton. Take note, because you're only going to get a third of what he's saying. When you go back and listen to it, you'll get the other two-thirds, so you can research it. So keep your pen and paper together, because he's going to take you on a ride. Ooh, tonight's word is unfolding. Mm-mm-mm. Or unpacking the gift. With that being said, Dr. Isaac Carrier, the great, please say hello to the people. Well, you're too kind about the great. Uh, good evening, everyone. I'm, I'm uh, happy to be here with you this evening. Um, and uh, I, I do apologize. I'm just a little bit distracted. But I, uh, I, 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 always, I also have to echo Dr. Davis's sentiment uh, about, uh, uh, was it Boom Boom? Or which, who? No, he's talking about Buddy. Buddy oh, about Buddy. You know, that is, that is true. It's a true statement about Buddy because I have gone and had to research some things myself. But, Dr. Davis, I can say the same about you as well, sir. So I, I am in esteemed company tonight. So thank you, brother. I mean, uh, yeah, brother Drone, for this opportunity. You better say, brother. Now, listen to this. We got a special guest, special lady that's going to lay it out that's going to unpack it and I want to introduce to you Patricia Seller please hello to the people ma'am hello hello I just feel so blessed and honored to be in this magnificent um, panel of incredible work and needed work and service and so thank you for having me I'm so excited to be here Ooh, tonight we're going to go from surviving trauma to being victorious over trauma because tonight's topic is helping students recover from trauma. Not only are you going to learn how to recover from trauma, but you're going to learn how to help somebody else recover. Listen, let me go around the panel real quick. Helping students recover from trauma, from trauma, with the lineup tonight, we're going to dig deep. But what was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night? Who wants to go first? I think we uh, we'll probably all agree with this, but the first thing I thought about was the fact that kids today face a landslide, a cascade of microaggressions and sometimes uh, faulty thinking based on how they learn themselves to cope with those microaggressions leading to just an unbelievable uh, palette of trauma that teachers have never, never seen before. COVID exasperated it, and the current social climate multiplies it and magnifies it. And uh, man, is this topic timely. 
Wow, and it's so needed. It's so needed. Bless you, bless you. Who's next? What was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night? Patricia, I want to hear your thoughts. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've been in multiple situations with different countries and ethnicities and cultures. And you've seen trauma. You've seen immigration. You've seen migration. You've seen those push factors, those pull factors with different groups, ethnic groups. What was your thoughts when you got this topic for the night, helping students recover from trauma? So thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think my biggest thought tonight is really thinking about um, how we spend our power, our policy making, and our risk currency. So as um, school leaders, how do we create um, schools where the schools themselves are structured to be trauma-informed, right? Um, where all of our work is about uplifting, affirming, and consistently depositing into this idea that life and spirit are to be revered, um, where blackness and full identities can exist, and um, where we really create those procedures at every level um, that are about this idea where every child, especially our black and brown children, are affirmed, revered, and have a space within their bodies, their movement, their time, their ideas, uh, where they can exist in their identities. You know you're dangerous, don't you? You know you're dangerous. Life's long search. You know, I, I call you the wind, Patricia. <laughs> I call you the wind. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so Randy Boom Boom Blake, man, I I know this had to touch you because you not only are you a five time world champion kickboxer, but you know about recovery as a champion. And I've seen you in the ring. I, I've I've read your book. I've heard your heartbeat, and to me it sounds like a bass drum on a marching field. When you got the topic for the night, helping students recover from trauma, what went through your mind based off your past experiences and how you yourself recovered from trauma, from the battles? What's your thoughts, sir? Mm -hmm. First thing I thought when I read about it was hallelujah. <laughs> you know, it's obviously it's not a game, but you know, it takes you back to your past. Well, my past in general, and trauma wasn't even a thing when I was coming up. It was just just hush hush, kind of throw it underneath the rug, and kind of fast forward today with you know, a good friend of mine, buddy, just said was you know, Kobe kind of just blasted it into all of our faces. Now it's there. It's everywhere. It's on TikTok. It's on Facebook. Everybody has trauma. Like you're lying if you haven't experienced some form of trauma. 
um, just Sunday in church, that was the topic of what we talked about was how to deal with your traumas. And so it really excited me to just get on this panel today and, and talk with everyone and let's just see what we can come up with. Oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Dr. Larry Davis, what was your thoughts when you got the topic for the night? Well, my mind was everywhere because I, again, we talk about due process and uh, I, I've seen it. I've seen it at its finest, not at work. I've seen it at its finest be used imperfectly. I've seen it at its finest not serve the person it should have served. And I'm not just talking about it in our schools, but in our legal system. So, uh, again, this is also one of those I might have thought about those three monkeys. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil, and just keep your mouth closed. But since you won't let me do that, uh, let's go. No, 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 that's not it. That's not it. You can speak freely on this podcast. <laughs> the Honorable Dr. Isaac Carrier, what was your thoughts, sir, when you got the topic for tonight? Helping students recover from um, So I I got excited about it because I, you know, um, I share the sentiments shared by everyone thus far. Um, having worked in the schools and the districts that I've worked in um, for, you know, my entire career, basically, um, trauma was something that was a very rea real reality for the majority of my students at, at any given point in time. Um, for those of you that don't know, at the onset of, well, the, the, the school year that followed the onset of COVID, I uh, took a principalship at a school here in Texas that was uh, that I knew nothing about. Um, I actually accepted the, the, the position because uh, the... Uh, the principal was the first person to pass away uh, from COVID in, in that county. Um, and then I later found more out about the school, and it was one of those that were extreme, you know, extreme circumstances. Uh, hadn't had a consistent principal. Those kids had not had a consistent principal since they were in early elementary school. And so there was just a lot. Like Buddy said, it, it uh, COVID exacerbated it. It certainly uh, brought it a whole lot more to light. We see it in everything. Um, everybody is seemingly on edge. And, and, and so uh, that alone is, is very traumatic. But um, we're, we're in, a, in a weird place right now, which kind of... Uh, really brought on more excitement about this topic because where schools are concerned, I can't speak about anywhere other than, than Texas, but what we're experiencing is a, it's also an explosion of, of a previous a pre COVID problem, which was a teacher shortage. So now we have a, a large number of individuals that have stepped into classrooms that are not, um, uh, Certified, trained, qualified in most cases, uh, other than having a degree to do so. And so not only are they uh, tasked with learning how to become a teacher, it's how to address students and work with students all at the same time. 
And so it is It is certainly uh, a very, very important and worthy topic, one that's going to require uh, continued discussion along with, you know, with appropriate action as well. Wow. You know, when you spoke, I thought about the underprivileged. I thought about... I thought about myself because I did not grow up rich. I did not grow up with a lot of resources. I grew up how I grew up. I grew up in the ghetto. They call it the hood. And when I grew up, I literally saw my next door neighbors get arrested. I literally saw my next door neighbors get shot. I saw a lot of death growing up. I saw a lot of trauma growing up. I knew what PTSD was. Uh, before I even heard the word PTSD, they didn't even call it PTSD then. They called it, they call it the hood, hood life. They call it thug life. It, it was it had so many different names. And then later on, I started hearing PTSD. I, I don't know when PTSD was created, the word, but I, I was exposed to it from from the youth. I was exposed to it from my uncles being on drugs. I was exposed to it to my aunts being on drugs. I was exposed to it when COVID-19 hit and it started taking the lives of my uncles and aunts. I was exposed to it. I was exposed to watching their lives go down after COVID-19 and watching them get on drugs and I felt helpless because what could I tell them? Could I tell them everything's going to be all right when they lost everything? They lost their homes. They lost their they lost their loved ones. I'm up up to panel with this question. I, I want to get started, but I can't because I feel like I gotta I gotta ask this question. How did COVID nine How did COVID nineteen affect you? How did it affect you? The panel's open. Let me go first to... Well, go, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The panel's open. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll lead off because I was in a non-education space, and I think everybody else was in an education space. And so uh, just a short recipe for disaster. In the first 18 months of COVID, I lost four of my employees, one who had worked for me for almost 19 years, one who had worked for me for 14 years, and then we shoot to the very, what I would like to call almost the tail end. At the beginning of this summer, I lost a, a fifth employee to COVID because someone came from Texas to Arizona and did not tell anybody they were ill and interacted with the population. And a 74-year-old warehouseman died in less than two days. More than anything else, COVID has completely disrupted my idea of how I can be a positive charge for my people who work for me and trust me that my average time of any employee in my employee has been over 14 years now. So people who go to work for me, stay working for me. And when you rip apart a family like that, that's exactly what it is. You rip apart a family, but I'm not in the educational space. I just wanted people to have a, a, a bar sitter there. No, no. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. The panel's still open. How did COVID-19 affect you? Who wants to take that? I'll go. And, and I'm not, I, I'm really not trying to be cynical, but because I was a part of the, the group that was writing those uh, reopening school plans. And I would like to just say this. 
it showed us that we valued money more than we valued our children and our teachers and our educators. It showed us that the budget, the finances were more important because they were looking for ways that we could count students present, not keep students present. They were looking for ways that we could count students in attendance to get the funding, not ways to make students count towards getting an education. So COVID showed me that our education system is more about money and finance and less about our children. Deep, 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 deep. Wow. Um, who's next? How did COVID-19 affect you? I'll, uh, I'll go next. Um, so COVID affected me in, in multiple ways. Um, I had a very, very <clears throat> close friend, um, fraternity brother, that um, very early on, um, he texted the, the, the group of us and said that he wasn't feeling well and that he was, you know, going to stay home and, and quarantine. And um, we got, you know, another text a day or two later saying he was going to go ahead and go to the hospital. And then the next text we got was from his wife. He was in ICU on a ventilator. Um, and a short time after that, we got the final call off final text. And I can't even, I can't even put into words how that affected all of us. Like I said, very, very close. Almost it's when, you know, it's kind of like when friends become family type of situation. Um, me personally, at that time, I, I was in education, but I was consulting. And um, in one fell swoop, my, you know, my, my business, my livelihood went silent. Um, and so I had a lot of time to sit and reflect on things. My, um, my older daughter was a senior. That was her senior year. And all the things that you, you look forward to, you know, her prom, her senior activities, and, and ultimately her graduation, all of that was taken. She didn't get to experience any of that. Um, and it probably bothered me more than it bothered her. Um, she had her moment, but being the, the person that she is, she didn't dwell on it. She just prepared to enter college, and, and that's what she did. She, she's a senior now. She'll be graduating in May. Um, but it, it had a it had an effect on me, um, probably more than I knew at the time. And now, in, in hindsight, when I really look back on it, it, it was a uh, it was a scary time. It was. You know, the unknown, uh, I remember just, just going to the grocery store. Everybody's masked up and staying as far away from each other as they could. And, like, it just was so de desensitizing and desocializing. Um, and it, it was it was a really hard time. Wow, I want to say so much, but I got to, for the integrity of the podcast, be quiet. That was a lot. Um, who's next? How did COVID-19 affect you? Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> it affected me in a bunch of similar ways in a couple of different ways. Um, 
you know, I was a kickboxing coach and I had tons of clients and, you know, life was thriving. And next thing I know, now I have zero clients. <laughs> I got a baby on the way. I've got a, a, a 10 year old at that time. She's in school and, you know, I, it wasn't so much the money thing for me. It was more seeing the struggle in my kid, you know, being able to see her go to school every single day, driving straight A student. And now you're this moody. It's just, you, you, she became kind of zombie-like. And it was very interesting to see that. And for me personally, what changed me, like the gentleman said before, it was the, the mask, the social distancing, you know, the desensitizing of now socializing. Um, I'm from Oklahoma in Tulsa. And, and Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's still very, uh, how do I say this? It's still high tensions when it comes to uh, racism and, you know, the whites and the blacks and, you know, things of that nature. Not to get too touchy on that subject, but that really amplified times one million when COVID hit. You got these masks, got these vaccinations and the riots. And I, I've seen a lot of things that made me not sleep well at night because, you know, as a man, as a, as a, as a father, as a dad, that comes first. And if you know me, I don't care about the ranks and the titles. Well, I do, but my greatest title is always going to be on the dad. So for me, I lost a lot of sleep having to basically sleep with one eye open because I didn't know I was going to get attacked or somebody was going to try to raid my home. So personally, that's, that's what affected me the most was not knowing if I was going to have to use my martial arts skills and protect my family or maybe I was going to get taken out because somebody else lost their mind. So uh, COVID affected me in that way. And it was, it was definitely traumatizing. Thank you so much for that, sir. Thank you so much. The question still stands. Patricia, how did COVID-19 affect you? Mm. Thank you everybody for sharing here. And absolutely. Um, holding space for all these traumatizing experiences, right? And um, similarly, uh, I was teaching second grade at the time, and, you know, we, we thought, oh, we'll shut down for two weeks. We sent home the five to two weeks, right? And um, we really were, we had no idea, right, of what was to come and or what was here already. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely, um, I agree with this idea that really quickly it became clear that the priorities of um, school systems, uh, community systems, and government were, you know, governed by money and governed by um, resources and scarcity mindsets, right? And um, as teachers and students were navigating through this, there was um, an understanding that we were still very much top-down in terms of policy and power. At the same time, our students were often the most tech-savvy kids, you know, the most tech-savvy beings in our classroom, and there were opportunities to um seeing teachers and students as policy co-creators from the ground up. Um, 
and seeing the distance to that, right, because there was a system that was very much intense and being top down. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, we were having to train ourselves and become tech savvy and all of those things. At the same time, we're trying to find students who haven't been in communication um, with yet. We haven't been able to figure out, um, you know, where is the lunch is going to be set up. How can our students who are mostly walkers get to the school lunches? So all of those logistical pieces. And then how do we get more supplies out? Um, so all of those pieces that are happening, how do we do drop-offs um, in, in homes? And all of a sudden, you know, college, uh, our, our state standards and academic pieces no longer have the priority that they have because well-being and um, really tending to humanness and tending to grief that we were all experiencing, right, was top priority. And from that standpoint, all of the issues that were already existing well before the pandemic, right, um, were amplified, right? So teachers had been leaving the field since well before the pandemic, and now, um, you know, that is exacerbated. We had students not having boys and students um, being uh, disqualified and, and, and disposable right, in their identities, and all of a sudden we're grappling with that. And luckily, I was in a district that, and in a school where we were already committed to anti-racist uh, learning and teaching, learning, doing our own unlearning and learning, and yet all of this was happening in the context of, you know, we still have to connect with our families, we spend time finding our students, and we connect them with them and their well-being. Um, from a personal uh, standpoint, in terms of, you know, my home, my family, having family in Brazil and Dubai and, and having privilege of being documented in this country and having economic privilege, um, I did experience this idea that, you know, when I lost loved ones in Brazil, I wasn't able to so quickly get on a plane and go see my family, um, which is the experience of many uh, immigrants in this country, many people around the world, migrants, um, because of our barriers to movement, right? Um, and then as I'm, I'm listening to all of us share this idea that um, all that we were grieving ourselves and walking with our children at school and at home through their grief and through their trauma, all of this becomes front and center, right? And, and it did certainly for me and my family and my students. And um, yet, so many systems were trying to continue business as usual, right? And the misalignment of that kind of policy uh, with what is needed on the ground became very clear, right? Where we see teachers leaving, we see teachers moving, um, you know, to choosing uh, to, to, to get out. Um, and then all of us as a collective just trying to grapple with what this means in terms of uh, taking care of ourselves, you know, sleeping, not sleeping, eating, not eating, and all of this.
Patricia, what you said was so, what's the word? Nurturing. It was nurturing. It was, and you, you actually changed the whole trajectory of where I was going next. But that's okay. That's okay. Because I, I have to ask this question next. So how long does it take to recover from trauma? How long does it take? And have we, as a society, have we really recovered from COVID-19? I hate to say this, but I'm going to say it because it's not about me. It's about the people that's listening. And and the people that's listening, I have to put you out there because it's, you're listening in over 90 countries in over 2,500 cities. So I, I got to... I got to put you first. Have we recovered from COVID-19? The panel's still open. That's the question. Have we recovered from COVID-19? The simple answer is no. The only true answer is no. We don't have the right to determine for anybody else how they handle trauma and the resulting grief that follows the trauma. And everyone travels the grief journey in a different way. There are tons and tons, pardon me, of people that I see still wearing masks every day. There are tons and tons of people who still distance, even if they're not wearing masks. It's almost like it's become ingrained behavior. And a lot of people, when having a discussion, express the ideology that they are saddened by the idea that they can't be as close to people as they used to be psychologically. They can't even get over the barrier that they have now mentally created in their head. But, but is, 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 is that a microaggression? Is that a microaggression? Is that a microaggression? I think that, I think if you blame, shame, or judge somebody because they are struggling to get past COVID, I think that becomes a microaggression. And when you pile on, it becomes an active aggression. So, no, I don't think society as a whole has gotten past COVID. Have individuals got past COVID? Absolutely. But not as a society, no. I know we, we can't, we're not in a, we're not in a uh, getting past, uh, we're not in a pure type of country, but that's not who we are. We ask the question, can we sustain or maintain under the current conditions? And that's what we're doing when it comes to COVID. We are maintaining and sustaining it. And it's not a micro aggression because it's a political aggression. And when it becomes a political aggression problem, it becomes a national problem. So it's not nothing micro about it. It's nationwide. People are p- taking sides because of their political affiliates, not because of the actual trauma and what happened during that process. So no, we are not recovered from it we're not in recovery from it we haven't even addressed recovery wow that question still stands as a society have we wow i'm just blown away have we recovered from COVID 19. so i'm uh i'm screaming amen to the previous comments um the political the political landscape is, I mean, just like we were able to see uh, those that that weren't, uh, you know, as aware as others about just the 
the financial aspect of, of education and, and how actually really important it is that we would risk the lives of students and teachers and, and their families uh, all, you know, at the foundation of money. But we've got here in Texas um, that I don't know if it has passed yet or not, but there's a bill on the floor now that will uh, that is intended to prevent even private proprietors from mandating masks. Um, and in addition to uh, removing any possibility of another shutdown should should that become necessary. Um, the, the politics around this are very, very, very polarizing. And and so the answer, my answer to that is, is very simpler, is very similar to Buddy's. No, we're not over it um, as a society. Um, certainly there are those of us that have, have learned to, to accept it or deal with it better than others have. But as far as being over it, uh, I don't. I don't know that you can put a timetable on that, or even should try to put a timetable on that. Um, and because it's so, it's so you know dependent upon the individual and how you know how you respond to things. Um, and so we are, I think we're light years away from actually being over it or healed. Um, I don't even honestly believe that is. Um, even possible, at least in the, in the in the years I have left ahead of me. Wow, that's that's heavy. That's heavy. Uh, I, let me say this. Let me say this real quick. Please, please. Once once COVID became a binary popular topic, America lost the trust factor. They don't know what to believe, who to trust, what's real, what's not real, what counts, and once you do that. On a, on a scale as large as the entire country, when can you start to re-earn it? You can't. Who do they start to believe? They don't know. So we, it's almost as if we have to let this wave ride out and hopefully it dies down because recovery, belief, acceptance, and understanding of it has all been dissolved. Let me about, give a uh, please go ahead. Let me give a practical a practical example of what he just said. So you know, most kids these days they don't watch the news. They get all of their information from you know their phones, and you know, and most of that is social media, which most of that is <laughs> uh, incorrect at best. Dr. Carey, you're breaking up. You're breaking up, Dr. Carey. Dr. Carey, you're breaking up. You're breaking up. Uh, Dr. Carey, Dr. Carey, we cannot hear you. You're breaking up. You're breaking up. Um, let me go into this. So, schools are in a unique position right now, I would say that. They're in a unique position to offer services aimed at supporting students 
aimed at, I would say, thereby mitigating the effects of the trauma. So what's the task ahead of us? Student leaders must actively cultivate respect, supportive relationships with and among students, teachers, and parents. Educational leaders must also continually model and reinforce that these high expectations are achievable. They are. They're achievable. They, they are also tasked to keep social, emotional, and physical well-being in mind when it comes to our young people, our young scholars. Let's talk about those school leaders. Let's talk about those because we talked about we talked about micro and we talked about macro, the different levels. But could it be that principals need to be able to understand how important resiliency is? How important resiliency is for the school culture? How important is it to master resiliency and know? the different levels, the different rungs of resiliency in order to teach their staff first how to bounce back before we teach the children, before we provide provide those services to the children, to those adolescents, before we start addressing those post-traumatic stress disorders to our children. Because if you just look, you will see it. I tell my students all the time, when I'm lecturing There are two types of people There are two types of people There are lookers And there are seers Lookers They look but they don't see But seers When they see they're aware To the detail And so Problem solving comes apart when we look but don't see. Poor academic performance happens when we look but don't see. Poor attendance happens when we look but we don't see. What do we don't see is what are the factors? What's at the bottom of the iceberg that we don't see that's affecting this child's inability to be a positive social change agent. But either way, let me go to you real quick. I, I, I threw that word out there, a positive social change agent. You're the positive social change agent pro. Okay? And with that being said, and you're, I wanna, I wanna see through your eyes what can school leaders do to ensure parents that their children's physical and emotional safety is paramount? What I mean by that is, we're talking about trauma, we're talking about recovering from trauma. We're talking about social, emotional. How can school leaders, from your eyes, ensure parents that their children's physical and emotional needs and Emotional safety is at the utmost, the utmost importance. The parent one. What's your thoughts? Every teacher that's ever taught school faces at least two different types of parents 
and sometimes three if you really want to include the middle crowd. You've got the parents who are the blamers. They're looking for any reason to lay blame for when their children fail or have a problem in school or when they perceive an issue at school. You have those parents who want to support the school and believe that their kids should try to cooperate and help build the culture in the school. And then you have the ambivalent middle, which sadly is bigger than the other two, of people who may or may not, but usually do not get involved or engaged with their children. That's a sad effect, and it comes out of my analytics and my work. The problem with asking school leaders to ensure anything is, as the school leaders on this call can tell you, there's no such thing as a 100% guarantee. You can, A, invite the parents to work on the school culture. You can encourage them to co-create the environment and help make it safe by just teaching their kids the three precepts of no blaming, no shaming, and no judging. And then when you add to that, we need to make sure that if we see something that's out of place, we tell somebody that it's out of place. That creates physical safety. Emotional safety is a little tougher, but leaders can have in-services with their teachers that they can teach them how to deal with micro-grief and the grief cycle. And when one of the three or four processes that lead into the grief cycle appear in a student, they should have some level of recognition that this child is struggling and having a problem. And then open communication with the parents that this is what my perception is. You're the only one who knows the child well enough to know if it's reality. That open communication has to happen, and it can't happen from an accusatory position. It can't be what happens on the campus is none of your business position. Leaders need to do exactly what parents need to do with their kids. Leaders need to co-create that mental picture, that mindset, that safety, both physical and emotional, is as much a problem for the parents as it is for the teachers and the administrators. Get on board or you're part of the problem. And I, I lead with this. What got us here, when repeated, will leave us right here. Change has to be slow to be done right. But if you're saying things in your classroom or if parents are saying things like, oh, kids will be kids, leave, leave them alone. You know, they're going to make mistakes. Leave them alone. They're burying the lead. They're putting their head in the sand. They are not operating in the best interest of their children or any other children. They need to work on a level of knowledge and responsibility for caring for the other people in the school because once they leave school, they're not going to have that catch-all. The parents aren't going to be able to go, oh, I protected you, I'll protect you. That's not going to happen. The real world doesn't work that way. So the leaders need to really take a lesson out of the microcosm of the world and understand that the most effective leader is a leader who is willing to stand up and say, Come to me with your questions. Come to me with your problems. And if occasionally, maybe come and pat me on the back. Because I'm here for you, and I pray that you're here for me. What you just said saves. This is saving our young people. This is saving not only our young people, but our society. Listen, I, I want to talk about... Like because school leaders, because I'm, I'm about to go to Dr. Larry Davis. 
Buddy, what you said, Buddy, Buddy Thornton, what you said was so weighted, was so heavy. But I want to make sure that the people that are listening in know how to navigate what you said in a way that's going to be legally defensible for them. Okay. And when I say when I talk about legally defensible, I'm talking about protecting their rights, protecting their due rights, protecting their their due process. That liberty, that that property of interest is what I'm about to pull from Dr. Larry Davis because Larry Davis, when when due process requires that a fair procedure and and those fair processes are guaranteed from a procedural due process when making significant discipline decisions because I'm kind of, I'm flipping it a little bit because we talked about trauma at first but now we're talking about okay so now you have a situation where maybe a student has anxiety okay but the students have to still follow the student code book they got to still follow the district policy But due process requires that fair procedures and processes are followed when making significant discipline decisions that may affect or deprive that student's rights. Let me give you an example. So a student comes to school, okay, with something that the school book says you can't have so the student comes to school with a t-shirt that says machine gun Jimmy and so the administration says you can't wear that in the school you gotta take it home These are some of the examples that we have been seeing in our schools from the post-COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic. And, and, and that's just a small one because we've been seeing school shootings on the rise since COVID-19. And so these are some of the things that we need you to unpack, like where's the due process Where's the procedures? How are the school leaders coming to the table and talking about the, I guess, the campus improvement plans when it comes to facilitating these types of situations? What is fair and what is unfair? That's what I'm asking. What is, what's fair when it comes to due process? What is unfair when it comes to due process? And discipline. And is there an inequity amongst children of color when these conversations come up? That's, that's the question. What's your thoughts? That, that was way too many questions. I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions. So I'm going to just simply put it this way. 
due process in our public schools is uh, it's a fallacy because you don't have to have due process to suspend a kid. You can suspend a kid for three days at any moment for anything. Now, we look at three major components of due process, and let's be realistic. Uh, right to, to face your accuser, a timely process, and parents have a right to appeal. In less than 5% of any of those cases, the original, whatever, verdict stands. The kid is still going to be sent to an alternative school. The kid is still going to go to a, uh, ISS. The kid is still going to be out of school suspension. Less than 5% do a parent come in and appeal, and they hear that process, even if you go up to three-stage pro three, uh, process of uh, grief process, the grievance process, it rarely is overturned. So we have due process in our schools, but it's just as a checking a box. So students don't have a fair chance. If you want to look at a better one, look at Barbara's Hill. We just passed the Crowns Act here in Texas, and this school is not letting this kid attend school because they said if he let his hair down, it will be below his ears, on his shoulder, above his eyes. But his hair has never been down, and yet they keep suspending him, putting him in ISS. So we have a, a, we have a state law that said he has a right to wear whatever hairdo he wants, and we have a school district saying, no, he doesn't. So where is the due process in that? So due process is only a theory when it comes to our public schools. But I, I want to ask, ask, I want to ask some of the buddies thing. That's what really had me going. You said principals. We have to stop putting all this burden on the principal because if everyone is called, went out to the store and I said, go get me a traditional deck of cards, everyone would come back with a standard 52 deck of cards, spades, clubs, hearts, and diamonds, aces to deuces, right? This is how we treat our schools. When a principal, it doesn't matter where, and you know I was a principal at a, a, a school that was failing for four years and I turned it around. I've had schools recognized by TEA, the Texas Education Agency, as top performing schools. When a principal takes over a school, that budget has already been determined. It doesn't matter what a student body looks like. And the federal government says if you have a certain percent of kids at risk, special ed, uh, Title I, you get X amount of dollars. They've already put a lock, a ceiling on how much they're willing to help you with those kids. We can't put that onus on the principal. That onus is on our federal government, our state government, our local government. We have to fund schools based on the needs of children. And then we can say, oh, that principal didn't do what he could have done, given all the resources he had or she had. But right now, our principals don't have all those resources. And we're not giving them to them. Because we value incarceration more than we value education. So there you go. I apologize. I went over. Thank you. No, that's another topic. And you, you dangerous. Uh, we gonna bring you back. That's okay. Talk more about that. Let, let me go to Patricia really quick. Wow, uh, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for adding um, so much weight to this conversation, Buddy Thornton. You know, you just added a, a battleship, a cruise ship to the conversation. Uh, Patricia Sattler, let me ask you this. So based off what we just heard, why must administrative, why must principles, why does, why must principles procedures um, be completed before a principal assigns a student to be suspended, to be sent to DAP, to be sent to uh, alternative school? What's the follow-up through your eyes? What do you see? Is it is it fair across the board? Um, the way principals 
in the, uh, the way principals enact in, in their disciplinary procedures amongst their, their students. What's your thoughts? Well, um, thank you for that question. And then Dr. Davis, so on point, thank you so much for everything you shared because it is all a fallacy. And so the short answer is no, it is not fair. We wouldn't be where we are if it was fair. And I take the approach of wired administrative procedures to be completed um, because I think we need to be, get real clear on who we are, who we are not, whose we are, and what we must do to serve. And that comes from um, Dr. Jose Medina, um, one of our dual language professors, and um, also from Esther Arma, who wrote Emotional Justice, because here's the thing. Um, I take, I, having been in this for 20 years, I really take Dr. Bettina Love's work to be profoundly um, guiding right now and needed in that administrative procedures, they are anti-black. That is the short answer and the painful answer. They are anti-neurodivergence. They are anti-lower SES, anti-undocumented status, anti-linguistic, um, per, you know, perfect English kind of thing, quote-unquote, anti-LGBTQIA, I could go on. And the point is, Dr. Bettina Love invites us to become abolitionists at this point. And what that means is that we divest of this idea where people are disposable and where money gets to guide the policies we put in place to meet needs of children. Because we will not meet the needs of children, but we haven't been meeting the needs of children. And also to the point of like fears and who's, you know, the fears and lookers, um, Mr. Jordan, that you brought up, like, we don't see students, right? And then, moreover, to um, Esther Arma's point in emotional justice is we don't see, you know, what the pain is, what the unsafety is when it comes to racial discrimination, when it comes to racial oppression, right? And so um, Esther Arma really invites us to think about the unsaid. And I think that when we think about procedures, it's the unsaid. We can just check off boxes. We don't need to talk about emotions. We don't need to talk about race. We don't need to talk about um, racism and classism and any of that. And so as administrators, where I see us becoming policymakers at, at every level is where we get to also decide and get clear on if we're about abolition we are not here to reform. We are not here to reimagine, as Dr. Bettina Love says, and as Dr. Shalaby says, we are not going to be about punishment and reward and about mirroring the carceral state in schools. We have to get really clear about that. And what that means is we're changing the interview questions. We are changing, quote-unquote, professional standards for teachers. We're, we're actually putting the language of abolition within those. So that when we have an interviewer, we are asking the questions of how we're going to be life affirming, blackness affirming, spirit sustaining, culturally sustaining, linguistically sustaining practitioners at every level, right? And so as principals, we need to get real clear about that. And that has to be our guiding anchor 
and our North Star. And then what that means in terms of our ability to change policies, I believe that in a system where really teachers are the policy implementers and students are the policy receivers, we have it up. We need to flip the script. We need to be looking at districts and being like, this is my need. This is what it's going to take. And how are you going to support us? And then we're going to go find the laws to, you know, put through, you know, in the court system, what we need if we are, if those needs are not met. And I think that's the time for us to do that as families, as teachers, as administrators, those of us who are, have been here long enough to see that, um, you know, we can fight for equity all day long, but as long as the power and policy structure is still top down and colonial, we will continue to recreate the outcomes of coloniality. And that's not the world I want to see. The hope lies in the fact that we're all co-creators of policy and we get to say, not here, not now. And by the way, we are a place where we absolutely affirm all of the identities that come into the space. And we are a place where we have restorative justice practices, not just performative, but real restorative justice practices where adults are trained to also be part of restoring the harm. Uh, Patricia, will you come back to the podcast? Let me ask you again. Patricia, will you come back to the podcast? Yes, I will. I will be honored to come back to the podcast. Thank you for having me. No, we thank you. Listen, the reason why I asked you because you you, you opened up a whole other can of worms. We don't even have time to unpack it. You talked about colonialism. You talked about colonialism. You you talked about the three G's, God, gold, and glory. Because think about it, that was the precipice of colonialism, right? So, colonial America, where slavery exploded. I would say, for my personal research, slavery exploded in seventeen after seventeen ninety three. Eli Whitley created this invention called the cotton gin. The cotton gin was able to uh, pull apart, take apart cotton, right? It picked it, and so there was a large amount of cotton to be picked. So it required more human labor in the South. And that that harvest of cotton that was picked by the cotton gin then was loaded into these ships, these ships that were in the Gulf of Mexico that went up the East Coast to New York to those factories to produce clothes. And also, let's not forget about Virginia and North Carolina, South Carolina, who was the top tier tobacco producers as well. And so they made this profit from the backs of slaves, from the backs of slaves who, unfortunately, the top slaves during these, this time period in colonial America were African 
because they didn't get sick from the different European diseases, smallpox, you name it. And their work ethic was more productive. Let me go to Randy Boom Boom Blake. Patricia, you did this. You went deep. <laughs> I'm going to Randy because I know Randy's going to knock this into the popcorn section. Randy Boom Boom Blake, you've seen trauma. You've seen. You've seen it all. You've lived through it all. You've been challenged. You've had hurdles, but you kept going. You've been broken, you've been bruised, you've been bloody, but you kept pushing forward. What challenges did you face in school as a black and brown student in your community? That's my question. What challenges did I face? Is that, is that the question? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, wow. Well, for me, I, it's something I've always known that that was just different. I don't know. It was just some aura about me. I never really fit in with anybody. I mean, I actually started off going to a black, all black school. And I was actually picked on a lot. Um, and I can't really tell you why. It just it just it just happened. So that was a challenge. Um, going into high school, I, I ended up being one of five black people in an all white school in an all white community. So now you want to talk about really not filling in because there was like six hundred of us. So that five people was really spread out. They made sure none of us was. <laughs> in the same lunchroom, the same classrooms. So uh, I think the challenges for me and what made it difficult was just the fact that it, it was a, a, a lonesome journey, right? But in a nutshell, um, it, was, it, was just, it was difficult because I just, I was always told I was different. And I just accepted that. But what helped me overcome those challenges was the fact that I joined martial arts. And when you join martial arts, you learn multiple principles. You learn self-discovery, you learn uh, respect, integrity, you learn all these, these things. And I would say that is truly what helped me overcome a lot of those obstacles, not just in school, but even, even still today. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I, let me go to, um, let me go to Dr. Larry Davis. Dr. Larry Davis, let, let me ask you a question. What's your thoughts so far from this podcast tonight? Give me a second. Listen, this, this, I got to tell you, I'm blown away, but there's, there's two things that just really popping out at me. And I want to just say this. And uh, uh, the young lady, she is so right. And uh, Dr. Drone, when she when we're talking about colonial education, we're talking about an education that was it, its impetus was on educating affluent whites, 
not blacks, not minorities, not, not, not so much about the slavery industry, but who the edu- education system was built for. And it wasn't built for minorities. And that's the same education system we employ today. And the other thing is this right here. As long as we have staffing models for our schools, we're never going to put children first. We should never look at how many kids a school has and then determine how many teachers they get. We should look at the needs of the students in that school and determine how many teachers they get, how many educators they get. If you have a special ed student who has a one-on-one IEP where they have to have one-on-one all the time, instead of adding that one-on-one, they'll give you that one-on-one, but they're going to take another paraprofessional away from you. That's not fair. So as long as we have staffing models, our education system is about adults. It's about money. It's about budget. It's not about our children. This this is powerful. This is this is fire, Doctor Isaac Carrier. Let me ask you a question. Historically, educational literature in the past did not focus on the success of underprivileged students in those low socioeconomic communities. Okay. That could be white, that could be black, brown, you name it. If they didn't have money, if they were poor, who cares? But now, this wave, this trend, this this SEL trend, this empathy seems to be politically and socially correct trend, right? Let's look through all that and ask this question how can teachers help students understand and not look because again there are two types of people there are people that look but they don't see but there are people that see and that are aware how can teachers help children comprehend help them see their emotions in a way that helps them better manage anxiety, that helps them better de-escalate from the pressure, from the stress, from the trauma of just day-to-day life's hurdles, activities, you name it. What's your thoughts, sir? So, first of all, there, I'm like chomping at the bit about all of the other uh, responses to the previous questions um, because there's so much there. Uh, in terms of of, uh, of this particular question, it takes me back to when I was a principal and, and, and helping my staff understand when I said they need empathy, not sympathy. This world is not going to feel sorry for you. And we can have the greatest, most um, understandable excuses in the world, and it's still not going to care about you. Teachers that truly care, and I believe all teachers do, I want to believe that. Maybe it's naive of me to do that, even at my age. Uh, They care about kids. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing this, right? or you shouldn't be doing this. Um, I think that there's really no canned response to that question. Um, It is truly addressing the kid or the student, the child, based on the relationship and the rapport and the the trust that they built with that child. 
um, so that one, the, the student will be receptive to what they say. And then the teacher has to be absolutely thoughtful about what they say, how they say, and how they guide children to deal with their emotional, um, and because every kid is different, but to deal with the emotional strain and stress that everyday life brings. Um, and here in Texas, the emotional strain and stress of education itself. Um, we've heard a lot about teaching to the test. Well, the reality is this. If we teach the approved curriculum, then we are essentially teaching to the test. It's not the way it used to be under a previous system. However, that's not what they mean when they say that. Um, and, and unfortunately, students, teachers, principals, under immense amount of pressure, just from an accountability standpoint with, um, with, with state assessments. Um, that alone is stressful. Um, so it really becomes an, an individual effort for kids based on their needs and how teachers, based on their relationship with those students, um, uh, can address them individually. I think that there's probably some whole group type of discussions that can take place. But when it gets down to the, the needs of the individual student, those have to be met based on their needs and in a manner that they can understand and accept and trust. Um, and then that takes real understanding. That takes true empathy. Um, feeling sorry for them. Yeah, it's, a, it's natural, right? It's a natural occurrence to just sympathize with anyone that's going through something, if you have a heart, right? Um, but at the end of the day, how you respond to that can't be um, in a manner that, that says, well, I feel sorry for you, so I'm not going to do this, that, or the other. It's understanding that they're dealing with this. It's accepting um, that they're dealing with whatever they're, you know, maybe dealing with. And again, this has gone on. This is something I've seen throughout my career, which is, you know, the schools that I've worked in have always been the marginalized, underserved, the hood, like you we referred to earlier. Um, very smart, very talented, very um, you know, great potential. But if we as educators don't see that and then embrace and and cultivate that, then we're part of the problem. Um, I, I truly believe, and, and this is just based on experience, not just what I think. The teachers that, that truly make a difference in the kids' lives, whether it be from an instructional standpoint or an emotional standpoint or whatever the case may be, um, are the ones that truly, truly, truly touch the essence of what kids need. And you can see it in one school. You can see it as a student travels from one classroom to another. Every teacher is different, every student is different, and their approaches are different. And they're going to resonate with every single one. But if there is just one, if, there is that, if every student has that one, then they have a fighting chance. Listen, this has been incredible. Let me get one person to sum this up or take away. Who wants to do it? And then we're, we're out of here. 
I, uh, uh, I hate stepping up to the plate here, but I do have one thing I do want to say. I listened to what everybody said, and everybody is correct uh, in one fashion or another. Nobody is incorrect. But I'm in my series of books, The Slippery Slope, and I'm about to launch books five and six simultaneously, I speak repeatedly about who's responsible for our society. And in the education space, I agree wholeheartedly with Dr. Larry Davis. We do put too much of a burden on the principals. They are in a no-win situation, and we have to recognize that. But in my books, I lay the, everything at the feet of parents. Parents are the ultimate responsibility for children. And across the country, a lot of the legislatures have passed laws allowing money to go and have parents move their kids to the schools that they want to move them to, making the parent the ultimate arbiter of where their kids are being educated and who is educating them. I don't believe in that system. I think it's flawed for a lot of different reasons. It creates equal but separate instead of what we got rid of separate but equal. But at the end of the day, the parents have to be held ultimately responsible. And if you're going to lay an outlier out to how do I hold a, a, a single mom uh, responsible when she has to work three jobs and she can't keep up with her kids and her kids are ultimately a, have no role modeling except at school, or maybe the kids who are abused at home and they see the school as their safe haven. There are so many outliers. It's crazy. So we have to have a village mentality, but at the end of the day, parents have to be held responsible for their children. And if that is the underlying fact, why wouldn't parents automatically want to do everything in their power to support the schools to make the culture and the educational process right for their children? That's the question. I think that sums up what we said tonight. Listen, wow. y'all got to share this to your friends. <laughs> you got to share it to your friends. You got to share it to your family. Hey, share it to your haters. Cares. This was another impact for night. Another impact to education leadership podcast. Facebook.